Hi, my name is Brian, and the Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 50, verses 1 through 6. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth, from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Ruth, and the New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5. So a person should think about us this way, as servants of Christ and managers of God's secrets. In this kind of situation, what is expected of a manager is that they prove to be faithful. I couldn't care less if I'm judged by you or by any human court. I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against me, but that doesn't make me innocent because the Lord is the one who judges me. So don't judge anything before the right time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring things that are hidden in the dark to light, and he will make people's motivations public. Then there will be recognition for each person from God. The word of the Lord. My name is Rebecca. Please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 7, 1 through 6. Don't judge so that you won't be judged. You'll receive the same judgment you give. Whatever you deal out will be dealt out to you. Why do you see the splinter that's in your brother's or sister's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother or sister, let me take the splinter out of your eye when there's a log in your eye? You deceive yourself. First, take the log out of your eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's or sister's eye. Don't give holy things to dogs, and don't throw your pearls in front of pigs. They will stomp on the pearls, then turn around and attack you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. You may be seated. I was recently in a seminar where the man presenting was trying to show us how to use atonal music in a church setting, and the illustration that he played for us was, to be honest, quite painful, because this is what he instructed his congregation to do. He said, okay, everybody, I want you to take a breath in, and on your breath in, I want you to sing the vowel ah, and then on your breath out, I want you to sing the phrase Men, and so together it would say amen after enough breathing in and breathing out. But the catch was that because it was an experiment in John Cage esque atonal music, he wanted the congregation to just pick their own note. And so you can imagine what this sounded like. Again, it was a very painful experience, even just listening to his recording of the day. But so the sound was something like ah, and different people holding it out at different lengths of time, and then all of a sudden, man, man, man. And, and sometimes it almost sounded like they were getting close to a chord. <laughs> and other times it was like a chord with the augmented fifth, 
Or maybe a chord with just a couple of notes that just really don't belong together. And I was curious how the other people in the seminar were going to respond to this because personally it, it was not evoking worship in my own heart. Um, but I was trying not to judge. And so I, I, I wanted to see what the others would say. And a few people responded by saying, that's so beautiful. And they said, it's so beautiful because the priest was not telling the congregation what note to sing. They could all just sing whatever note was in their heart. And I thought, are, are, are you waiting? For, is that the punchline? I mean, is this... And then someone else says, you know what was amazing? Is the people found their own chord. Now, <laughs> you, you don't have to know too much about music to know that you don't really find your own chord. I, I mean, if our worship team was just finding their own chords, we would say they were playing poorly. Or we would say if a guitar player just picked up a guitar and just found his own chord, like my toddlers do, you would say... That's not really a chord. That's something, but it's not a chord. And I wondered if this whole little experiment in music was maybe a reflection of a larger discomfort within our generation or culture, whatever blanket word you want to use for this, and sometimes the stereotypes aren't helpful. But I wonder if it reflects this growing discomfort with telling anybody that what they are doing is wrong. A growing discomfort with saying, you, you can't say to anybody that that's out of line or that that doesn't belong or that that breaks the rules of music because now I, I guess we have to sort of say there are no rules except for what you sense or feel. And so, so long as you are being true to yourself, nobody else can tell you that you're doing anything wrong. So all of a sudden, a C major chord is no longer C, E, and G but a whatever chord is whatever note you sing and find to make your own chord. This musical example is, unfortunately, I think, an indication that we have this growing discomfort with any sort of judgment. Worse than that, maybe we think that this sort of attitude is exactly what Jesus had in mind when Jesus says, don't judge. And so somewhere in the back of our minds we think, aha, don't judge because judgment is not possible, right? And so all of a sudden we say, well, well maybe, maybe this whole Christian thing is, hey, don't judge me and I won't judge you because after all, judgment isn't really possible. There is no actual chord. There is no actual music theory. There are no right notes and wrong notes. There are only your notes. And yet we hear this fairly often in our culture. Where someone says, hey ma'am, don't judge my choices. Those are my choices. I won't judge your choices. Those are your opinions. And so I don't want you to evaluate me. There is no standard. There is, no, there is nothing except opinion. Is this what Jesus is getting at in our text this morning when he says, don't judge lest you be judged? Are we told not to judge because no judgment is possible? Again, to read the verse again, Jesus says, don't judge so that you won't be judged, you'll receive the same judgment you give. Whatever you deal out will be dealt out to you. Perhaps it's important this morning to start out by saying that we've maybe confused judgment with two other words. And it's maybe helpful to, to put on the screen here the words judgment and discernment and evaluation. And to say here are three different words that we've mistakenly lumped in together. What is discernment? 
Discernment is something we're all called to do. And if you read the New Testament in particular, all believers are called to test the Spirit. Later on in this very passage, we're in a series, by the way, on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This whole sermon series is called Arriving because we're talking about how to live in light of God's arriving rule, His rule that's touching down from heaven to earth. It also talks about our arriving, our journey in becoming this new kind of people. And we are called as this new kind of people to discern. So we're supposed to discern. In fact, toward the end of the sermon, Jesus will say, here's the difference between good fruit and bad fruit. Here's the difference between true disciples and false disciples. Look at the fruit. So you say, okay, so we are supposed to discern fruit. And we are supposed to discern the spirits. And then what about evaluation? Are any of us allowed to evaluate? Sure, our teachers are allowed to evaluate their students. They, they should be. They should be. But again, isn't there a growing discomfort even in the educational circles of saying, well, I don't know if I would give it a letter grade. I just want to say to this essay, thank you for your interesting interpretation. That has no bearing to any truth, but hey, thank you for your... Are, are, are we getting to the place where even evaluation is not possible? And yet we know there has to be a way to evaluate. Can you evaluate the consequences of a certain claim. So when, in this article that I referenced early in Time magazine that says, these, you know, this particular young couple that says, we have chosen, that we've decided that we can't have the life we want and have children, so we've decided not to have children because we don't want to be, you know, mediocre parents. Now, you may not be able to judge their heart, but can you evaluate this claim? Can you evaluate the consequences of such a claim? Yes, and you should. But see, here's the trick about discernment, evaluation, and judgment, is that they they very quickly bleed into judgment, don't they? You may start out discerning it. You may start out saying, okay, wait a minute, something feels off here. And then you may quickly slide into judgment where you say, I know what's wrong. It's because da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and you reach a conclusion. See, what's judgment? Judgment is a conclusion. It's a verdict. It's saying the matter is closed. The case is closed. I've settled. I know what it is. And very often we start out with evaluating and saying, oh, let's evaluate this claim. Let's measure the consequences. Let's discern the fruit. And before you know it, five steps later, you're in judgment where you say, well, I know why they say that. It's because they're selfish. Wow. You don't know that. You can evaluate the claim without judging. Okay, so here's the journey we're going to take this morning. We're going to ask three questions, and then we're going to get to maybe a more important question. But the three questions we're first going to explore is, what can't we judge, who can't we judge, and when can't we judge? So, all right, since I've laid it out for you, the difference between judgment, discernment, evaluation. Okay, great. So, So you're saying there's some things I can't. Okay, what can't we judge? Meaning, number one. Meaning. So often we make the mistake, we slide into judgment from discernment or from evaluation because we think we know what people mean by what they say. Or we think we know what people mean by what they do. Have you ever received a text message from a friend and you say, oh, oh, I know what they meant by that. What they meant was they don't want me to come. Like, how did you know that's what they meant? They just said, you know, or, or someone, someone says, you know, hey, I'm sorry I can't make it to this event. Oh, I know what it is. They're too good for me. That's what they meant. Well, how do you know what they meant? Oh, I just know. 
It's so obvious. <laughs> Can you judge meaning? No. You know, a second thing you can't judge is motives. So someone does something, someone says, I know why. It's because they're just selfish. I know why they said that. I know why they did that. It's because they're arrogant. It's because they're prideful. I walked by the pastor this morning. He didn't even smile. I'll tell you why. He's narcissistic. I, I, I maybe, but I, but I promise that I did ignore you on purpose. And we think we know why. You know, you've heard of the fundamental attribution error. You know, whenever we do something wrong, it's because of external circumstances. But whenever someone else does something wrong, it's because of an internal character flaw. So you're ten minutes late to the meeting. It's traffic. She's ten minutes late. She's a mess. She's un- I mean, that's, that's just who she is. So all of a sudden, that's her character, you know? Like, wow, okay. When, what can't we judge? Okay, all right, all right, so we can't judge meaning or motive. What about who can't we judge? Well, for one, those who are not in your authority. Can a parent make a certain judgment about their children's decision? Say, you know what? That is a foolish decision. Whatever, you can't judge me. Actually, I can. It's part of discipleship. That's what I do. Hi, I'm your father. Okay, all right. You know, years ago, Stephen Covey wrote this book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, right? He had this whole thing about circle of influence and circle of concern. Anyone remember this? And he talked about how our circle of influence most often is this big, but our circle of concern is like this big. So we're always looking at somebody else's decisions. Oh, oh, I, I wouldn't have done that. I can't believe they're stopping at Wendy's on the way back from church. That's us. <laughs> I can't, what? Oh, and your circle of influence is right here, but your circle of concern is right here. That's a sure way to be exhausted in life. To have your areas of concern be bigger than your actual area of influence. That's a sure way to be exhausted in life, is to think that, you're the, that you, as a judge, that your jurisdiction is much larger than it really is. When the truth is your little district that you're the judge over, is like, bitty, bitty, tiny, this is your area. You know the place where we fall into this all the time? Is when we judge the world. Christians, we do this all the time. We act so offended when we find out that sinners have been sinning. But the darkness is dark. Oh my gosh! You know how I know this? I've done a very scientific study. It's called Facebook. I just scan my timeline and then I get depressed and I close it. And I say, oh my gosh. Because Christians are up in arms about the world. We have got the book written on them. We have closed the book on quote unquote them. We know what they are like. We know why they do what they do. We know that so-and-so is truly a, whatever, fascist, communist, liberal. (laughs) Interestingly, this is not new. Paul, I think, dealt with this. 1 Corinthians 5 Verse 9, I wrote to you in my earlier letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And you're thinking, that's right, Paul, I will not. 
And then he goes on, but I wasn't talking about the sexually immoral people in the outside world by any means. Like, what, you weren't? Or the greedy, or the swindlers, or people who worship false gods. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world entirely. I, I know, Paul, that's what I'm getting ready to do. <laughs> but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who calls themselves, quote-unquote, brother or sister. Who's he talking about? People in the church. Who is sexually immoral, greedy, someone who worships false gods, an abusive person, a drunk, or a swindler. Don't even eat with anyone like this. What do I care about judging outsiders, Paul says? Isn't it your job to judge who? Insiders. Uh-oh. God will judge outsiders but expel the evil one from among you. You know what I find fascinating about the American church? We don't know how to discipline Christians who sin. But we sure as heck know how to write the book of judgment on the world when they sin. So it's much easier to say, oh, you know this so-and-so or this celebrity or this politician or this leader or this whatever or this business. We can, oh, we know how to judge them. But then when it comes to actually doing the kind of judgment that is restorative by saying to a, to a church member who's persistent in open sin, openly persistent sin, that's a whole other sermon, but that seems to be Paul's criteria, open persistent sin. When someone's doing that, then we think, oh, you guys, you kicked him out of the church. Christians, so judgmental. How could you do that? When the truth is, if you follow Jesus' patterns, Jesus in the gospel was toughest on religious leaders because they should have known better and easiest or most merciful on the sinful outsiders. That's the pattern for church discipline is that we say when a leader sins, we hold them to very strict standards of, of, of discipline. We kind of know that in this church. And then when someone else sins, okay, we've got another way to deal with that. But when the world sins, we say, God will judge them. But we've sort of got it backwards, don't we? We want to judge them and welcome the sinner as if nothing's ever happened. And Paul says, you guys, flip this around. When can't we judge? All right, all right. So when can't we judge? When the matter hasn't been decided yet. When all the facts aren't in. When you don't know all there is to know, uh-oh, you can see now your opportunities to judge have just gone. You were so excited about the sermon. You're like, okay, I won't judge the world, but I've got a few Christians I'm going to talk to. <laughs> okay, all right. Go ahead. When the matter has been decided, when the story is over, when the facts are all in, when you know all there is to know, like, well, I don't. Right. So what should you do in the meantime when you don't know all the facts? Maybe when the story's still playing out. Maybe when it's still a work in progress. One thing you could do is just wait. Just wait. Give it time. I mean, we saw this happen when we had the pastoral transition here at New Life in 2007. Everybody knew what Pastor Brady was like. Oh, I know what he's like. 
Have you ever talked to him? Nope. But I tell you, I know the direction he's taking the church, and I don't like it. Okay. Do, do you, have you ever had an appointment? Nope. But I know it. Hmm. Praise God for your extra insight. What kind of stock I wanted to ask you about? Why don't we wait and see? Or, why don't you go and talk to them? Is there someone that you are sure has done something? Like, oh, I know, I know this. And listen, again, social media has given us an artificial proximity to other people. And so we all of a sudden can eavesdrop on each other's dinner table conversations because everyone's posting from their dinner tables. <laughs> and so we sort of feel like we're there. And I've, I'm guilty of this. I'm chief of sinners in this. But so I'll fire back something or we'll say something or you maybe you don't say it, but you think it. you've got a conclusion in your mind. You think, ah, I know what they're really like. So, well, maybe you should reach out to them, send them a note, ask them, is this what you meant? Is this what you're, you're, you're trying to say? And so we go, Glenn, I, I don't have the way to go and talk to that person. He should just know better. She should just know better. She's an influential leader or whatever. Okay. Well, if you can't go and talk to them, Here's something that might be helpful. What if you believe the best instead of assuming the worst? What if upon first blush you say, well, you, you know, that strikes me as kind of funny, but I'm going to believe the best here instead of assuming the worst. So, all right, well, Glenn, now you're, you're really limiting the, my opportunities for judgment. Well, there's one more thing about when can't you judge, and that is when... Your perception of life is no longer marred by your own sin. <laughs> what? I mean, think of the verse here. Jesus is saying, look, how can you say to your brother or sister, let me take the splinter out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? I think it's kind of comical. Jesus, who grew up as the carpenter, he's saying, hey, let me give you a woodshop illustration. It's like someone trying to go and take the... The little you know, sawdust, little speck out of it, when you've got like a beam in your eye, which of course is totally ludicrous, but he's using the absurd to say, what's the sin in your life like? Oh, I'm nothing. <laughs> How often do we get offended at someone, not just because of what they have done, but also because of our own vanity and pride? How often do we get upset and want to judge another person? Not just because they've done something that maybe was legitimately you know, wrong, but how many times is it exaggerated because of our own pride? So I mentioned the Pastor Brady story because that's what I did, even on staff. And we have this, we laugh about it now because we're good friends, but in his first six months or so of being here, Word got all the way down the org chart where I was that there was a dress code change coming to New Life staff. Now, if you know me, you know I wear jeans as often as possible, uh, and, and I don't like to wear slacks or leather shoes. I frankly don't own very many, except for weddings. I, I've got it. But there was this rumor going around that, oh, you know, one of the first things Pastor Brady was going to do is change the dress code, and all of us were going to have to wear... Uh, khaki pants and, and leather shoes. And I fired off the nastiest email you could think of. Uh, not the nastiest email you could think of, but just this really haughty email about 
how Colorado culture is like sneakers and North Face jackets and we're not like you Texas people. I mean, I had all of this stuff. You know, I had very wi- a few very witty phrases in there that I re- really regret. And, um, <laughs> but um, the next day, <laughs> guess who came to see me? <laughs> so I'm, I'm sitting there talking to Brady, and, uh, and I'm feeling really sheepish about what I've done. And uh, he says, Glenn, okay, set aside the dress code thing. We're, 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 that, that's, that's not even going to happen and he's like, but, but tell me, what's, what's going on in your heart? He's like, I haven't known you very long, but, but this doesn't seem like congruent with who you are. What's, what's this, where's this aggravation coming from? Now, what a mature question to ask. Number one, he chose to believe the best about me. And he really didn't need to. That email would have been like, Exhibit A. didn't have to, chose to believe the best, came and talked to me himself, and then helped me see what was in my own heart that was causing judgment to come out of me. And I had to think about that. What is in my heart? What is causing me to do this? Maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe, I've, maybe I'm still reeling with the hurt of a, a previous leader. Maybe I've, I'm reluctant to trust a new leader. Maybe I've got my own pride of thinking, whatever, you name it. And I'm being vulnerable with you this morning. Because I think all of us, when we rush to judgment, if we say, wait a minute, what's going on here? What's the thing right here in my eye? (laughs) What's preventing me from seeing this? And as soon as you get that thing out, by all means, go ahead. You see, Jesus warns against judging, not because judgment is not possible, but because judgment is simply not our place. It's not because, the, it's, not, it's not like our culture that says don't judge because, hey man, there is no standard. Judgment is not possible, so step off. No, 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 no. Jesus says don't judge, not because judgment is not possible, but because judgment is just not your place. You can't give the final word on a matter. You can't give the last word on a person. And you say, well, Glenn, someone's got to. <laughs> You're right. Someone does. And the truth is, we can't go, you know, whistling some happy tune and kind of saying, oh, it's all right, I won't judge. Because there are many things we see in this world, in this life, that require someone to judge, someone to make right. Listen, you can't be a justice generation and reject judgment. Because part of justice is judgment. Part of justice is judgment. So we're, you know, we're young people, we're all about justice. You know what the flip side of justice is? Is judgment. Part of justice for the oppressed is judgment for the oppressor. Correct? So somebody's got to judge. And the good news is there is a judge who's perfectly just, who's totally impartial, not swayed by race or economic background, a perfectly just judge. Only Jesus can do this. 
Only Jesus knows everything there is to know about an issue. Only Jesus is Lord over everyone. Only Jesus is the judge that has the the largest jurisdiction of all. It's the whole world. The whole earth. Only Jesus is just, without any sin. No planks in His eye. And at the end, there will be a final judgment. But here's the bad news. You and I aren't the prosecutor. We're the defendant. All of a sudden, our eagerness to say, okay, well, Lord, would you just judge this person? Would you just fix this already? And God says, I'm I'm coming to judge, but I, I think there's something I should tell you. You're not the prosecutor. You're the defendant. You say, well, wow, now what do I do? Only Jesus knows everything. Only Jesus has it in his power. Only Jesus is just enough. Here's the thing that Jesus does. The unthinkable thing. The only righteous judge gets off the judge's bench, sits down in the defendant's chair, and says, put it on me. It was me. So, but, but, no, no. He who knew no sin became sin. Jesus on the cross stands in the place of every evildoer, every sinner, every unrighteous, every oppressor, every backstabber, every gossiper, every murderer, every adulterer. Jesus stands in it and says, that's me. What kind of judge gets up off his bench to sit in the place of the guilty? What kind of judge says, I will be numbered among the transgressors? Count me as the guilty one. What kind of judge sits in and says, the verdict that you've had hanging over your head, the guilt that you've had hanging over your heart, it's no longer yours. It's mine. I'll take it. And all of a sudden, because he does that, for all who, be, who, who believe in Christ, you have heard the verdict over you. And the verdict over you is righteous. Not guilty. Beloved. Son. Daughter. What is the book on you? The book on you begins with loving Father, Son, and Holy Spirit creating you and delighting in you. The book on you begins with a God who says, I'm going to create the whole world and every person in it on purpose and with pleasure, with delight. The book on you continues with you walking away from this God. But rather than some imaginations we have of we walk away and then God turns away, the book on you says we turn away and God comes after. This is the marvelous thing about the story that we've been given in the Bible. It's not about man's search for God. 
So many religions begin with a thinker coming up to the mountain saying, I'm going to try to figure this out. I'm going to try to search for God. I'm going to try to find him. And the story we've been given begins with us turning away from God and God saying, I'm going to find humans. I'm going to find my son. I'm going to find my daughter. I'm coming after you. So the book on you is a story about God coming after you. The book on you is a story about the loving creator God coming after you even when you turn your back on him. The book on you is a story of God coming after you even when you persist in your way and go all the way to the logical consequences of your action, all the way to death. Jesus says, I'm coming after you all the way to the cross. And on that cross, I die in your place. So that for all who believe in him, the final word on you. What's the book on you? How does the book on you end? The final word on you is not, yeah, you're okay. The final word on you is not, yeah, 50%. The final word on you is the Father saying, Beloved, Beloved child, beloved son, beloved daughter, I don't see the guilt. I don't see the sin. I don't see the shame. I see righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. See, imagine for a minute how you would begin to treat others if you really believe that this was God's judgment of you. Imagine. How often are we projecting out of our own guilt into judgment on someone else? Because we feel bad for our failures, and so we want to drag somebody else down too. So, well, they're just, they do that too. Instead of saying, I have been raised up by God's grace, how can I raise someone else up in God's grace? I don't feel brought down. I feel raised up by God's grace. How can I raise someone else up? Imagine how differently would you treat someone else if you believe that God's judgment of you was that you're righteous, that you're beloved, that you belong. Imagine it. Imagine it. If you bow your heads this morning, I want you to think about this. We do a confession of sin every week. Not because we think it's a good idea to beat yourself up. But we do a confession of sin every week because we know that only Jesus can take the guilt away. See, there are voices in our culture that say, listen, the secret is you just got to love yourself. Or the secret is you just got to forgive yourself. But you know, that's impossible. Because you can't just take the guilt away. To forgive another person is to lift the burden of the wrong off of them. How can I lift the burden of my own wrongdoing off myself? I can't. How can I lift the burden of the offense off of myself? I can't do it. You you can't simply just forgive yourself or love yourself. What the gospel says to us is you've got to begin with confessing your guilt before the only God who can take it. And so we do confession every week because we truly believe that there is a judge who became the guilty one. 
And when we confess our sin before Him, He says, yep, I carried that too. Yep, no, I, took, I died for that one too. Yep. No, I, I... You're like, no, Jesus, I did this. I need to pay for my sin. He says, yeah, but you can't. And I already did. So would you bow your heads this morning and quietly where you are, just begin to make your heart ready and confess before the Lord. Say, God... Forgive me for this. Or forgive me for that. Cons- confess your guilt. Thank God for the mercy of the cross. Thank God for the mercy of Jesus. Whose judgment over us is a good and gracious word.